Today, my guest is Chris Brancato of Narcos fame. Um, as a fan of the show, as a fan of his work, truly hope you enjoy this episode. But we get into so much more than Narcos. We talk Godfather Harlem, we talk Hoodlum, and we talk how he even wrote a 90210. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the new episode of the Paul Rivera Podcast. I am very excited to have uh, a legend in the game who I now happily can call a friend, Mr. Chris Broncado. What's up, Chris? Hey, Paul. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited to have you here, man. I think I want to I wanna get right into it. Um, my producer always gives me a hard time saying I don't research or prep for shows, which is a complete lie. And doing a little bit of research, the little bit of research I do, um, I saw... You grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Yes. Right? Teaneck, New Jersey. Did you spend a lot of your time in New York as well growing up? or I did. At the New York City for me, Teaneck is about 20 minutes out of Manhattan. Okay. Uh, it is the first community in this country to be voluntarily um, – uh, uh, it's, a, it's a town that was integrated from the early 1900s. So it's 50% black, 50% white. And I had an upbringing there where the, the public school uh, just had an incredible, it was an incredible mix of people and the spirit that the black and white students had there is extremely rare. There was a, the, we, we went to the uh, New Jersey State Championship Basketball Finals, the high school team. There was an amazing amount of spirit. Uh, and for me, it created a, a couple of interesting things that only later have I been able to process. It's the fact that when I went out to Hollywood to start trying to work as a writer, I noticed that uh, when African-American writers, producers, directors were working in the Hollywood system, first of all, it's hard to get a job because you generally wouldn't have enough experience to, to enter the system. Uh, and I also found that white producers weren't so good at accessing the stories and the uh, point of view of African-American writers, partially because that's not their background. It, it's like that joke. It's like you, a kid comes running home and says, Mom, you know, um, um, my, my friend outside says he's black. And, 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 and well, are you sure you brought a black kid home? And, and, and I, I don't know. I have to go check. Like, in other <laughs> words, where there's there, there was none of the kind of – uh, difficulty of communication that some producers in Hollywood have connecting and talking to African-American filmmakers, writers, actors, etc. So I feel like that Teaneck upbringing in some ways was a, was a benefit. Uh, Teaneck was also home to um, the Isley Brothers record mm -hmm. label, uh, Phoebe Snow. You know, there was, there was, a, there was an entertainment uh, community there that was accessed New York City quite a bit. So long story short, my interests and goals have always been out there as a writer to try to tell stories that interest me um, that's often in the gangster genre and to try to do so in co collaboration with filmmakers of uh, in the case of narcos hispanic filmmakers mm -hmm. in the case of godfather of harlem african-american filmmakers and writers um it's it's just something that i find to be uh voices that are not heard 
in film and television with the frequency that they should be heard. Uh, and, and I feel like one of my strong suits is the ability to take these historical bad guys, Pablo Escobar, Bumpy Johnson, El Chapo, John Gotti, other things I'm working on, and try to present them in the gangster form that we all love to watch on TV, but with some sort of spin on it that makes it not the millionth gangster thing mm -hmm. you've seen. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, so we're going to get into that in a second, but how much, you obviously spent a lot of time in New York, right, growing up, or whether it was pre-college or post-college. Did that have an influence on you, whether it's, you know, career you wanted to go in, style, things you've seen? Well, for me, like I said, going into New York City at age six or eight, you're going into the Emerald City. It's it's so different than suburbia, and there's a action going on. There's a different story being told on every block in New York City. So it had an incredible influence on me, and I knew that I wanted to write and produce movies and television. I was told you had to be out in Los Angeles to do so. Um, I worked here as a writer for the beginning four or five years of my career and then realized, wow, you know, there are really not a lot of jobs here. Mm -hmm. So I reluctantly packed my bags and moved to L.A. where I've lived for 30 years. And I've told you this, Paul, it's not my <laughs> favorite place in the world to live. Yeah. Much prefer to be here in New York. And Godfather of Harlem helped bring me back here physically mm -hmm. to make the show here. Uh, but, yeah, I think the influence of New York, first of all, it's a city that has so many, um, it has such energy that's spread into a million different channels. In other words, there's the finance business here. There's the business you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's sports-related stuff, entertainment-related stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And I think uh, I find it stimulating to be here. I think that the film crews here are phenomenal. Uh, and overall... Um, there's a reason why New York City's, you know, become this second hub of production again. Mm -hmm. uh, not only tax breaks, but also stuff, make good stuff here. Make, makes perfect sense. So this is, this, this is the point in every interview I do. I always say that when you do a little bit of research, you find something on your guest that you didn't realize you knew, no matter how well you think you know them. And, and for you, I didn't realize you worked on 90210. How does that happen? Someone your genre, and obviously it was early on in your career, but how did the 90210 thing come about? Well, here's what's funny. I, uh, I got out to Los Angeles. You start to try to become a writer, and you're, you're writing sample scripts. You're hoping somebody will get, get, read your stuff and think you have some talent. And it so happened that Aaron Spelling, who was one of the biggest producers out there, uh, got a handle on one of my scripts back in 1990 and asked me if I wanted to write on this new show he had, this 90210. And I looked at it, and it's about a bunch of high school kids and who, the kids from Minnesota who moved to Beverly Hills and deal with all the rich stuff. And I had some familiarity with that myself, having been a kid who grew up in absolute middle-class upbringing, going to Brown University, where my, you know, down the hall from me was John Kennedy Jr., and there was the oh, King wow. of Jordan's son. So I, I had had experience being planted into worlds that were, you know, way more high-tone than my own. And that's kind of what 90210 was about fundamentally. What's funny about it is I was insistent when I came on the show as a young writer. I said, man, this Brenda and Dylan, there's these, these people making out here. I, I don't like this Brenda character. It was Shannon Doherty. I said, she's kind of a bitch. <laughs> so I advocated for, uh, uh, what's her name, Kelly to mm -hmm. kiss Dylan in the beach cabana. <laughs> and I said, Every, everyone in our audience is going to love that. 
and I convinced the showrunner to allow me to have Dylan kiss Kelly in the beach cabana during a summer episode. And several days after it aired, I came into the office, and there were 14 mail carts. There was no email then. That's how long wow. ago this was. There were 14 huge mail carts with thousands of letters. And I went to the boss, and I said, hey, they dug it, right? I had him kissing that beach cabana. He said, they hate it. They all want <laughs> Dylan and Brenda back together. Anyway, long story short, I can go around the world, and I can tell people, yeah, I co-created Narcos. And people will be like, Wow. Then I'll say, and I also wrote the episode where Dylan kissed Kelly in the beach cabana. It's like, oh man! <laughs> no. There's it's a certain a, segment. A moment, yes. There's a certain segment of the audience that cares way more about that than they do about <laughs> Pablo Escobar. So you do that, and uh, you work on nine uh, nine hundred two one zero in um, ninety two, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then, in ni- obviously, you work right from there on, but. In 97, Hoodlum. Well, what happened was I was writing these Aaron Spelling shows. 90210 is the most well-known of them, but also other ones that you've never heard of. And other shows that had no – I had no deep interests as a human being in the subject matter of shows I was writing. It was more just, hey, I'm getting a paycheck. I'm writing a script, you know, learning my craft. Uh, And I fell actually into this period of of sort of – I guess I would call it a kind of depression writer's block I just I was like I'm writing stuff that I wouldn't even watch myself Mm. like that there's something strange about that and so my old friend Paul Eckstein who I went to college with had told me for many years about the fact that his grandmother had been sent to college in Harlem by Bumpy Johnson so Paul had been telling me about this legendary gangster who affected his family's life and would I be interested in writing a movie about him uh, and I said, for a whole number of years, I said to Paul, no, not interested. Oh, we spent a lot of years in jail. I don't want to write about a guy in jail. I, I had a lot of excuses why I wasn't going to do it. And Paul went out and sought other writers, including some really great ones. Um, but nobody really cracked the code on it. And he happened to find me at this moment in 1995 when I was kind of free of ideas. And I said, well, let me look at this Bumpy Johnson stuff you have. And I looked through all this research and I found one paragraph that said in the 30s, at the beginning of Bumpy's criminal career, he fought against Dutch Schultz and Lucky Luciano to help protect the numbers bank of Madame Stephanie St. Clair, a West Indian woman who was the chief numbers operator in Harlem. And so I went back to Paul and I said, yo, this, this paragraph right here in Ebony Magazine out of everything you'd seen, it was every that paragraph. Day, that dozens and dozens of pages. I said, this is the movie right here. Not a biopic spanning 80 years of his life. No, just this little section where he fights off the Italians. And Paul said, yeah, that sounds good. So I wrote the movie, and Andy Garcia starred in it as Lucky Luciano, mm-hmm. and Tim Roth played uh, Dutch Schultz, and Lawrence Fishburne played um, Bumpy Johnson. And wrote that script speculatively, meaning you don't get paid for it, you write it in advance, and sent it out on the town. And you'll be amazed at this, and I'd be curious to know your experience in this realm. Whenever you have a project where the lead character is African-American, the whole project is put through a series of checks and balances that wouldn't be the case Mm -hmm. if it was just a a, a white lead. In other words, how's the movie going to do in foreign? Mm -hmm. Because our perception is that black movies or black themed movies don't do well in foreign. How's it going to do in the United States? Who's going to come see it? How much money are we going to spend promoting it? Um, All of that stuff becomes part and parcel of whether a project is going to get made. What's the budget level? And lo and behold, got the script to Fishburne. He was into it. 
he was uh, recommended Bill Duke to direct it, who had directed him in a movie called Deep Cover. Mm -hmm. It was very good. And lo and behold, we got it out on the town, and uh, United Artists bought it, and there we were. We shot it in Chicago. Chicago doubled for Harlem wow. because Chicago of 1996 looked more like Harlem of the 30s than Harlem did. Yeah. And so uh, we went to make the movie there and released it in 97. And it's one of those funny movies, Paul, where I can go out on the street today, right outside your office. If I ask any white person walking down the street, have they seen Hoodlum? They won't even know what it is. If I ask any black person, have they seen Hoodlum? They'll say, not only have I seen it, I saw it last week <laughs> on Showtime or BET, uh -huh. and I've seen it 10 times. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew that, that there was a response to the character of Bumpy Johnson in the African-American community with, with him as a hero. When you look at the spread of gangster heroes that we love to watch, okay, you've got Michael Corleone, mm -hmm. you've got uh, Jimmy Kahn playing Sonny, mm -hmm. you've got Tony Soprano, You've got, you've got Fishburne from Hoodlum, but very few people have seen that. You know, who are the iconic gangster heroes in film and television entertainment? And where's the African-American one? Where is he? What, what, where? Okay, you could say uh, American Gangster added to the list of folks mm -hmm. with Denzel playing Frank Lucas. My argument about Frank Lucas, quite honestly, is I'm not even sure this was his idea, but the idea to send back dope in Vietnam coffins may have been his idea, may not have been. Mm -hmm. But that's the sum total of what Frank Lucas was. Frank Lucas was kind of a, he was Bumpy's driver. Um, he exaggerated his influence in Bumpy's life. He ended up being, you know, ruthless and managed to corner the heroin market for a while. But as a man, as a human being, he's actually not very interesting. In mm -hmm. fact, he's a snitch mm -hmm. is what he is. Mm -hmm. So that for me, covering Bumpy Johnson's story has always been the one that I, th I think he's a gangster who deserves to be elevated to that level of the fictional equivalent of Tony Soprano or, or Michael Corleone. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so Forrest's people came to me about it two years ago and said, hey, would you be interested in doing something with Bumpy Johnson, but not in the 30s when he started his criminal career, in the 60s? My first reaction was, <clears throat> like, a, like a white executive, actually. I was like, hmm, uh, a black period piece set in the 60s uh, with, Harlem, with Forrest Whitaker. Yes, we all do love Forrest Whitaker, but Forrest Whitaker is a black actor, not a white actor. So will the international percentages work? So, all the so calculations. Let me, let me ask you that then. Cause, so if obviously black gangsters existed, right? I mean, why haven't those stories been told to the level and to the detail that you know white gangsters and those stories is it the business end of it the back end of it the concern that they may not do well they may not have the international appeal i think it's part of personally a larger conversation because you were there when we filmed the shop the last episode and we had um don Cheetalon. yes and we asked him about miles davis and he said i worked on that film for 10 years and one of the main issues or challenges was that uh the networks were afraid they didn't have international appeal right and he was like we need to get a white actor on it and you know unfortunately their numbers bear that out in other words these companies if nothing else they research where they're selling their products mm -hmm. 
very carefully. And I think there is a problem in the in most international countries where there's not a significant African American population. There's a difficult time getting shows that are perceived as being about the black experience internationally or, or the American black experience. Either way, that just doesn't connect with the audience in that country. They have no they have no connection to a black population like for instance Americans do mm-hmm. you know and, and 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 thus those shows don't don't sell very well there and then what you're doing when you're making a show is you're going okay how much are we getting paid to air it domestically all right how much are we going to make from the international does it all add up to cover the cost of the show and yield a profit mm-hmm. well in lots of cases with black themed shows they, it, it doesn't so for instance black lightning which is on the CW kicks ass in the United States dead overseas wow. nobody and and which is strange to me because black panther kicked ass everywhere yeah but so it's a very dicey thing and when i went to go sell god so my first reaction to godfather of harlem was all right well forrest wants to do bumpy in the 60s i already did the character what new is there to say i don't know and so i passed on it and the producer said to me well would your friend paul this is paul Eckstein, who worked with me on the original hoodlum would paul be interested in it I said, yeah, I, th- I think he probably would. So Paul started to work on it for a few months, and what they told me later was they were waiting for me to eventually get less busy and jump <laughs> in the game. But meanwhile, he was massaging the stuff and trying to develop how a show about Bumpy Johnson would uh, would, would roll out. <clears throat> and he handed me back a few months later. I did get less busy, and I started to say to myself, okay, it's a black-themed show, but 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 that's okay. Uh, Forrest Whitaker, you'd be amazed that in some executive circles, Forrest Whitaker doesn't mean that much. He certainly doesn't really? mean as much as Kevin Costner. He's a legend. He's a legend. But but does a legend draw you to that television channel in the 500, 500 channel universe? Right. Or does he draw you there? And you and I might say, yeah, well, of course it's Forrest. Right. But the, the conception at the sales level was, hmm, what does Forrest mean? How badly do you need to see a show that stars him? So I said, yeah, I said, yes. I said, let me look at the material once I saw that my schedule allowed for maybe to work on it. And I looked at the material and it turned out I knew this, but I had forgotten it. Bumpy Johnson and Malcolm X played chess every Sunday in Bumpy's apartment in the early 60s. Wow. They were friends, close friends. And I'm looking at that passage, and I, I, I turned to Paul, and I said, I know how to sell this show. I know how to get this show on the air. And there's only one way. It's at the central core of a Bumpy Johnson-Malcolm X friendship is the collision of the criminal underworld and the civil rights movement in early 60s mm-hmm. Harlem. And those are two things you don't hear in the same sense. Right. When you're learning the civil rights story in history class, they're not telling you about the gangsters in Harlem who were part of the Nation of Islam. They're not telling you that the lawyer that Adam Clayton Powell Jr. had was the same lawyer that the mobster Frank Costello had and that these guys were closer in degrees of separation than you could possibly imagine. That crime and the advancement of social classes in this country are inextricably bound together. Why? Because when you're a second-class citizen, second-class citizen in America, whether you're an Irish, Mick, a Dago, Italian, a black, Chinese, doesn't matter, Jew, doesn't matter where you're from, you're a second-class citizen, you do not have the same 
uh, ability to enter the mainstream economic system. You can't go to med school when you don't have any money to go to med school. You can't go to law school. So what's the way that traditionally disadvantaged groups, second-class citizen groups, gain traction in America? Crime. There's no barrier to entry. You don't need a license to sell booze off the back of a truck. You don't need a permit to sell dope. Yep. And so fundamentally, immigrant groups to this country have always found at the bottom of the economic ladder, crime is the stepping stone that leads them up the ladder of advancement in America. And with money, you get political power. And with political power, you get social power and then cultural power. And before you know it, the mix – the Irish who came here in the 1800s and were the N-words of the United States during those decades, mm -hmm. by 1960, they have an Irish Catholic president. Yeah, they're running shit by that. They're yeah. running shit. Yep. They run the police departments. They've managed, though their early time in America was liquor, murders for hire, you know, you know, dark shit. They've managed slowly but surely over the decades to weave themselves into the tapestry of America. The Germans did it. The Italians do it. The Italians come at the end of the 1800s, settle in New York City and New Orleans and different places across the country and start this organization called the Black Hand that they imported from Sicily. So these criminal organizations develop in a foreign country where you don't have a toehold, you don't have a tradition, you don't have a prescribed path to follow. Now, the African-American experience is 100% similar and 100% different. How so? The similarity is this. All the same things apply. You're a second-class citizen. You can't get a job at the Tony Law Firm. You can't get the job selling stuff where you want to sell it. You are, you are through racism, pushed into a corner, and you have to supply what the demand is. Yeah. And the demand is for, for drugs and gambling and prostitution and things that ordinary society doesn't condone. But when you don't have a choice, that's where you drift to. So all of the same reasons why crime becomes that first stepping uh, step ladder up the economic opportunity ladder of America, crime becomes that first step. Um, for almost every immigrant group or second-class citizen group. The difference is this. African-American immigration to this country was involuntary, whereas the Italians, the Germans, the Irish, they all came because life in their country sucked and they heard better stories of America. <clears throat> for the large percentage of African-Americans here, it was a, an involuntary migration, so it wasn't a choice. But... And so that fundamentally makes the black experience in America different yeah. than any other From racial group. Yep. But, the, but still, the using crime as the stepping stone to political, cultural, and social advancement and then even full integration into the tapestry of America is, is something that, that we watch happen in this country. And, and our show uh, examines that. And so what's so interesting about the show is this. We're, we said it in 63. At one point, Chin, our Italian gangster. This is Godfather of Harlem. Godfather of yep. Harlem. Says to Cassius Clay, says, hey, you know, I, I don't know, you know, a Catholic is president now, and that would have been unheard of 30 years ago. Maybe someday a Muslim will be fucking president. But I can tell you right now, a Muslim ain't going to be the world champion of the United States. <laughs> and so you better take a dive against Doug Jones or, or we're going to out that you're a Muslim. My, my, my point is this, though. My point is that 
we've made this show now. We've had a black president. We've had a so so that by that measuring stick of political advancement, blacks have achieved incredible amounts in the last fifty years. You could tra- you could challenge the ultimate goal, right? Like president of the United States of America, right? It's like yes, yeah. And our current president has proven that anybody can be president. It <laughs> yeah, seems, literally. but Obama was you know a huge milestone on the federal level, and yet at the same time on the local level, we have economic inequality, we have police brutality, we have opioid addiction, we have gangsterism, we have drug dealing, we have a murder rate in Chicago that's, you know, bananas. Mm-hmm. So that so that I can look at the time period we're in right now and say, look how much things have changed. Things really have fundamentally changed in some ways. Even sitting here in your business in, in lower Manhattan, w- this wouldn't be, have been existent in 1963. Absolutely not. So there have been incredible markers of progress, and at the same time, there are lots of things that just haven't changed at all mm-hmm. or enough. And that is where I think Godfather of Harlem is going to find um, traction with an audience both young and older mm-hmm. because we're, we get the fun of watching New York in the 60s. We get the fun of watching a gangster show with all its attendant glamour, murder, intrigue, backstabbing, mayhem. But fundamentally, this show isn't really about black and white relations. It's not about the opioid crisis. It's about America and how we all have a dream of grabbing some version of an American dream that we make our own. And oftentimes crime is along that, along that path, and, and the show explores that. And so I would say to my writers, if you're writing a scene about the gangsters saying that they want to make sure their territory is protected – Hey, Jimmy's going to get the guns over on 46. The the dialogue all becomes really – like you've heard it a million times. We can't let them get into our territory. Oh. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say to my writers, well, the only way we're going to make it different is run it through the prism of what our show's about. So if the scene's about crime, how is it also about civil rights? If the scene's about civil rights, how is it also about, about crime? crime? Yeah. So that, for instance, when Adam Clayton Powell wants to push for civil rights legislation, um, he realizes that the mob is against him, and he's going to have to also do hearings against the mob in order to get his civil rights legislation passed. So that every time my writers sit down to write a scene, I go, if it's a crime scene, get my civil rights in there. If it's a civil rights scene, get my crime in there. And that way you, the viewer, when you watch the show, are going to see – a version of a crime show you've never seen before and a version of a civil rights show that you can't believe you're seeing mm-hmm. because it's so violent and sexy and see like that's super like we talked about you you know growing up in a middle class community and going to brown um where do you love passion understanding for like organized crime gangster fic where where'd all that come from well it's weird it's it's as a writer you you drift into what sort of interests you and what you feel like you're good at doing it took me quite a long time to figure out what i was good at doing as a writer uh and obviously we all have an attraction to the people in life men or women who don't let the rules get in the way who ignore the rules of, of society and there's a there's a fascination i have and many of us have with that kind of behavior there's a little bit of you know you're watching something that's you're not dangerous supposed to be you're not watching, supposed right? to yeah. be watching 
And then for me, uh, uh, I I find researching Pablo Escobar and the narco story or Bumpy Johnson and the Malcolm X story, I find researching that stuff and what I find to be more interesting to me than stuff I could just make up. You know, in other words, I, I, I also knew that saying this show is about the collision of the criminal underworld and the civil rights movement. I was like, oh, man, that's perfect to pitch to these white executives. They're going to say, ah, oh, like, the civil rights makes it aspirational, yeah. makes the show important. And mm -hmm. the crime, we all love the crime. Mm -hmm. And I was right that that logline worked like gangbusters. I've never had anybody say to me, huh, why do you mm -hmm. want to do that? That's not interesting. But then I said, oh. That's the that's what I'm pitching the show as. Is there really a show in that? Right. Let me do the research. And as I started to do the research, I found all of these interconnections that you're going to see in the show. So my point is that what I do is I try to read about crime. I've read so many books about Escobar. I'm like a scholar on the <laughs> Colombian cocaine trade. And what I try my job is to take that information it's almost too strange to believe that Escobar ran for Congress and you know, carried out a war against his own country or that Bumpy Johnson saddled up with Malcolm X and fought a civil rights struggle on the streets of Harlem. That stuff, my job is to find the most interesting angles on those stories and then figure out a way to write scripts and produce the show so that you, the viewer, are brought into that world so that you, you're taken into it and you get a chance to experience it as it – now, look, there's, there's fictional construction I create. I wasn't present at all the conversations Escobar had with his guys, so I have to make stuff up. But my, my job is to capture the spirit of those times and to give you, the viewer, a sense of being in that world and what it was like. So, for example, when I watched the Narcos pilot, I was sitting – you know, you watch your work displayed to you for the very first time. You of know course, this with yeah. your, your, all your film stuff. And you sit and you've watched it a million times in the editing bay. You don't really know if it's – you know, you think it might be good. Right. You're not sure. I sat and watched Narcos, <clears throat> the very first cut, and it ended. And they had all the subtitles in there for the Spanish portion. It ended, and I thought to myself, well – I don't think it's great. It's not bad. It doesn't suck. <laughs> I think it's good, but I know something that it is more than anything else. It's different. Mm -hmm. It's different than anything you've ever seen. It's all set in Colombia. What show have we ever seen where every minute of it takes place in this foreign location where they never film anything for our, our mm -hmm. TV? And then secondly, what show has half the characters talking in Spanish? Right. And, and, and so many people say to me, oh, I hate subtitles. I don't right. want to read subtitles. 100%, yeah. But with Narcos, nobody ever said that. It somehow moved seamlessly. It worked. Even when I watched it the first time, I'm like, I didn't even notice. I just read half the thing in subtitles. I'm, I'm fluent in Spanish, and I read the subtitles. When I watch <laughs> Narcos, swear to, God, swear to God. So let me ask you this. So, you know, I'm always super intrigued. Like, I had a conversation with, I guess, humble brag, I guess. But I had a conversation with Dr. Dre when I used to work at Beats by Dre, and he said something to me super interesting that The Chronic, which is probably a top 10 album in hip hop um, history, he had told me that when he shopped The Chronic, he couldn't get a sniff of a deal. And I was like, well, that can't be. So like, what version of The Chronic are you talking about? And he's like, The Chronic you have on your phone right now, that's what I was shopping. 
And I said, did you ever doubt yourself? Did you ever think, uh, maybe I'm not the goods? And he was like, no. Like, I knew, I believed in my heart that, you know, I didn't know if I could sell it, but I knew I had what I had. So as it relates to Narcos for you, like, what was that process like when you, you know, were shopping, I guess, did people get it instantly? Because to your point, for all the things you just said, it's in Colombia, Spanish, subtitles. Did people get it or were they like, eh? Well, here's the weird situation with Narcos, which is the feature producer, Eric Newman, had been developing a Pablo feature film for twenty for 17 years. The problem with the Escobar story is it's too, if you're trying to tell his whole story, you can't do it in two hours. It's too big a story. Yeah. You just can't do it. He so, made money. He ran for, yeah, like, it's too much. It's too too mu much. And in yeah. fact, I read a script by Joe Carnahan based on the book Killing Pablo, and Carnahan's a good writer, and he had the big things in Escobar's career. I'm reading it every five pages. There's something so big that the whole movie could just be about that to the point where like you're 50 pages in and you're like, oh my you're God, I've had right. 10 huge things happen. <laughs> right. you know. And so what Eric did was he had a relationship with Netflix and he went to them and said, I can't do Escobar in a two-hour movie. How about a 20-hour TV series? And Netflix said, yeah, that sounds good. Can you get your Brazilian friend Jose Padilla to direct it who had done some cool movies in Brazil? So Eric and Jose partnered up, set up Narcos at Netflix. It was already sold. Some feature writers who had been working with Eric for 17 years wrote a draft of the TV pilot. And I was hired. The thing was, the thing was greenlit, ready to go. I was hired to come aboard and be the showrunner, which means that I then have authority over that first script and all subsequent scripts. And I'm the person responsible for producing, writing and producing the show. These guys who had written the original episode were feature writers. They weren't, used, they weren't in the television game. So I went to those guys and I said, I'm happy to have you on the show. But I do think that the pilot script you've written is going to need some revision. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one to do it. And they said, we'd love to have you on the show. We know you're the showrunner. But we would like to do all the revisions on the first script. They had, and I said to them, "No, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I have to, I have to have the vision for it." And and so they chose to step back and to, to actually to retire off the show. Really, I took their script, which I didn't think was the right way to open the show, and I went to the director and I said, "I'd like to start again," and he said, "I agree." We threw that script in the garbage, and now I was starting to do Narcos. It was already greenlit, 10 on the air. And so it's a very different thing than what you're talking about, Paul. I wasn't going in pitching them wackadoodle ideas that they had never heard of before in order to sell it. It was already sold, mm -hmm. and then I was added to be the creative behind the actual writing okay. of the scripts. And so I said to them, hey— I'd like the narcos to speak in Spanish because I hate these fucking movies where the narcos come in speaking like English and you're like, wow. when did Pablo Escobar ever have a time? Paul Escobar. Paul, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Even Blow, which has some very good parts to it, Blow has like an English speaking Escobar mm -hmm. in it. And so I go into Netflix and I go, hey, I'd like the narcos to speak Spanish because I feel like when you watch them, you're going to, if you don't speak Spanish, you're going to feel like you're taken into this subterranean world. Mm -hmm. If you do speak Spanish, you'll either appreciate that we were realistic or you'll have a merry old time making fun of the accent, mm -hmm. <laughs> as right. many people did. Right. 
So oh, it was also funny when we started. My friend goes, well, what are you going to – I said, man, we're hiring actors all over Latin America, the best actors from every country. And he was like, what are you going to do about the accents? And I was like – like, what accent? I'm, I'm like, what are you talking about? They all speak Spanish. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, Chris, a fucking Brooklyn cop isn't like a Texas guy, like 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 in the same country. Of, right. I was like, oh. Right. Good point, good point. So, Chris, what, what's your but, – but, but, the, but the, to answer your question, so that was me imposing upon Netflix – what we thought was the best way to tell the show. And frankly, they were like, great, whatever. They were trying to open up their service in Latin America. So characters speaking Spanish, because I, I said, it could be 30% Spanish. They were like, or 40 or 50. Well, they wanted I'm, more. No, yeah, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, you guys are geniuses. You're, <laughs> you're a friend it. to the creatives. No, it was just about business. <laughs> now, with Godfather of Harlem, it's exactly like you described. I'm out there trying to pitch a show that is a black period piece set in the 60s that has as Forrest Whitaker is a lead, yes, we all love Forrest Whitaker, but what does he really mean commercially? Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about a period piece where the budget level is going to be $6 million an episode. That's, that's a, a lot more than, than these companies like to spend. Um, and so there were a lot of strikes against it. And in fact, I had a very difficult time selling it. But like Dre said to you, I said to my partners, Forrest included, I said, guys, be prepared for a noble failure. Like, we know this project is saying something about the state of contemporary race relations in this country. We know this show has the gangster stuff we all love. We know it's something more important. It's about the aspiration of immigrant groups regardless of race, creed, or color. And so we believe in this, but that doesn't always translate into a sale. So just be prepared for us not to sell it. And, and sure enough, Netflix, Apple, stars, all super interested. And at the end of the day, they passed on ordering the series. So it was a failure. It was dead. I went off for Christmas vacation. The forest and the other partners were disappointed. And I said to one of them, our friend Marquan, I, sa I, said, I said, hey, in my career, I've been involved with several noble failures. You just have to have patience. You never know when something you truly believe in is actually going to come back and, and they have to catch up to you. It's not you servicing what they want. Because I've spent a lot of my career servicing what I think they want me right. to make. Yep. Guess what? Those shows never end up being successful. Mm. They sometimes even get, end up getting on the air because you've done everything you're supposed to do on the path. But they're not successful once they're there. Once they're there, ah, just another show like any other. And Chris, and, what, what do you mean? Sorry to cut you. What do you mean by noble failure? Well, what I mean is a project that you really believed in, that you know has at its core, it's not just popcorn. It, it's a nutritious meal. So that, for instance, I'm sitting writing gangster scenes with Bumpy Johnson where Bumpy Johnson is debating the, the, the value of making his own living by selling heroin when he sees junkies out on the street corner every day when he walks to his office. So, so, that, so that issues like that, that, that that are of concern to any citizen of this country are something you can deal with in the context of the show. I'm, I'm not bad-mouthing any show that's just a popcorn show mm -hmm. that you just watch to cool out at the end of the day. But I'm trying to do something more meaningful here. We all were. And so sometimes when you're trying to do something more meaningful, smarter, it's a noble failure. And mm -hmm. you, you, you end up having done it for all the right reasons. Noble failures are good because even if you, they don't make it to the screen, 
at least you can say, I spent my day doing something that I was engaged with, that I cared about, that I thought was important. At my stage in my life, at first it was, I just need to sell something. Please right. give me money and validate <laughs> that I am a real human I'm being. Doing, yes. I know what yes. I'm doing. But after that, it changes to, I really only want to get up in the morning. Writing is hard. So when I wake up, I'm considering a project that I got offered right now, and I'm saying to myself, I woke up this morning, I was supposed to read the book, more of it, to determine whether I want to turn it into a movie. And it's like, I only got around to reading like five or six pages of it this morning. I should have <laughs> read like 50. Well, that tells me something yeah. about how excited I am to get to that book. Yeah. So with Godfather of Harlem, that passion brims out of every pore. And so all of my partners were devastated at Christmas. I went off and had my vacation. I didn't think about it twice. I just was like somehow in the back of my mind, I know important work, good work, does have a way of floating to the top. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, was back in Los Angeles for one month after the Christmas break. <clears throat> I got a call from my agent. Hey, new guy took over Epics. His name's Michael Wright. He asked me if I had it, knew of any gritty R-rated dramas. Chris, I sent him your script at 11.30 at night. He called me first thing in the morning and said he wants to see you in Forrest ASAP. Went in the very next day to Michael Wright. I'm sitting there with Forrest, started to talk about the plan. He had read the script. I had written the first script. He, had he said, I love this show. Tell me about it. Started to tell him about it. I started to talk about how the music in the show, we're doing an interesting musical blend of using period songs from 63, Motown, doo-wop, the like, but also using contemporary music created by Swizz Beats to segue into old music, and then old music comes out and turns into something contemporary. Anyway, that, that whole <clears throat> game plan was something I was describing to Michael Wright. And I said, remember that Shy Light song, Have You Seen Her? It starts with spoken word. We have a character who's doing spoken word in 1963, that's the forerunner of what will become rap. Mm -hmm. you know, we're, sh we're showing the birth of, of a musical style that, that, that came out of Harlem and the Bronx, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and Michael says, the Shy Lights, have you seen her? And he starts to sing. Have you seen her, baby? Have and Forrest starts to sing too. So I'm sitting here, as a, like you're into Pitch a Project, and the head, the president of the network, and your star are singing a song and duet. You're like, Okay, things are good here. Let's call this meeting over. We got action here. They finished singing, and Michael was like, you know what? I don't want to be coy. Let's put the series on the air. I want 10 episodes. Wow. And when you hear that, you, they almost never make a commitment of a whole series right in the in room the meeting, with you. Yeah. yeah, they usually wait. He was like, I'm not going to screw around. Let's, let's start negotiating. Let's make this shit. And, th and then as a writer, you're trying to get out of that room yeah. as quickly as you're like, okay, let's, don't let's Forrest, we're done here. We're done here, Forrest. We're done here. So, Chris, what, what's your process like? So I remember one of the interesting things, and I don't know why it was surprising to me, you were talking about when you were writing Narcos that you actually went to Columbia, or maybe you didn't write it in Columbia, but you spent eight months in Columbia. What was that like, like through the first season of Narcos? Well, the first thing is when you hear, hey, you're going to go to Columbia and make this show. Me, like most other Americans, my entire knowledge of the Colombian people was based on one scene from Scarface. <laughs> I'm like, that's so true. Get to Colombia, wait for these motherfuckers to get their chainsaws, <laughs> and get out. Right, right. 
So that was, and that it's, I mean, it shows you how powerful film and television is that my first thought was, well, Colombians, oh my God, aren't they ruthless, remorseless mm -hmm. killers? And then I was told, nah, you know, the safety situation will be decent down there. So I did spend eight months in Colombia. I interviewed the generals who chased Escobar. I interviewed Hugo Martinez, the cop who was ran the search block against him. Were I, people happy to help, or was there still a little like, eh? Well, first of all, Colombians hate gringos telling the Escobar story. <laughs> okay. And the Escobar story has been told a million times in their country through documentaries and everything. So mm -hmm. I would be like, yes, we're down here in Colombia doing a show for Netflix. And they, they, and they were like, ooh, Netflix. They go, what is it? And I'd say, well, it's the story of Pablo Escobar. And they'd be like, oh, <laughs> give me a break. Really? They, they were really like eye rolling. So they didn't like it. I even met with the president of Colombia, um, Santos, President Santos, because his cabinet ministers were all, particularly his minister of culture, a woman, said, I don't like our country being continually branded yeah, as this cocaine thing. Right, yeah. And Santos said, I started as a journalist. I believe in freedom of expression. I hope that you will showcase that it was Colombian heroism and bravery that brought these guys down because they're all dead mm -hmm. or in jail. And I said, President Santos, that's exactly what the intention is. In fact, it's not to make the gringos the white hat heroes who come down. It's to show how morally compromised they became. And I feel like the show's going to reflect well on Colombia. And there's no question that it did. Like yeah. tourism went up. There's even a, you know, a special Escobar tour that people take, <laughs> of course. But like they, they, it's a beautiful country. The people are lovely. Mm -hmm. And of course there's a sliver of criminality like it's there is everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. right? There's one thing when we're talking about process that surprised me that I didn't even think of is you know, obviously, what percentage would you say is in Spanish? All of it, ninety percent, right? Like, no. Well, for instance, I in the first season, I would write the show all in English. That's what I'm getting at. You wrote in English. I wrote it, wrote it all in English. Then I would, I would notate the scenes that had to be translated to Spanish, and they would all be printed in blue ink. So you'd have black ink was the English, and then blue ink was English, but it was to be changed to Spanish. Mm -hmm. A translator in Colombia would translate it. Then he and I would get on the phone and talk about any little linguistic differences or this or that, and we'd work it out. So, for instance, we say, uh, you know, I guess I had a character saying, oh, look, these recruits down here on the field are fresh meat um, to, in the fight against Escobar. Well, like carne fresca is, is like is a sexual it's like a sexual connotation. Yeah. So the guy said to me, well, you know, your captain is saying – his recruits are fresh meat you know there's a sexual connotation there and i said oh all right well leave it not what i intended i said not what i intended but leave it anyway what the hell no uh so so th that was uh, well, that was the part of the process was there any fear that you might lose something in translation it's funny because i just had a discussion with a friend of mine who did a show in mexico city and he was saying the translations were terrible N no i'm not that precious about like like the actor has to say my exact words. To be honest, you'll hear me always say this. The scene has an intent. The, the intention, let's say, in a scene, you're playing Escobar and I'm the DEA guy. The intent is to make the viewer feel the tension of their relationship. Well, to be honest, if you're saying fuck you or eat shit, it doesn't matter to me what you're saying as long as that intent of right. creating the you tension. You evoke that feeling, yeah. So, so I did feel that in the translation, the intent of what I wanted mm. was almost always. Mm. And, I mean, what you did with Narcos, I mean, it literally 
was and is a cultural phenomenon. I mean, I see it. I've seen it in two ways. I I've saw it for years before I met you, and I've seen it since I've met you. And, and the way I've seen it before I met you was very simply put, Halloween. Right? We were joking. I was Escobar for Halloween three years ago. Um, we were talking about little kids being Escobar. That freak you out a little bit? That shock you? Like, was it? What was? What that feel like? Well, put aside some of the feelings I have about being involved in something that may glamorize or promote a man who was a psychopathic killer. There's a section of me, like if you ask me to talk about Narcos and Godfather of Harlem, I understand that I'm creating archetypes of characters who are really morally compromised and who do some awful things. And I am concerned that what I put out there in the world as entertainment matter not prompt kids to become, you know, to, to, to idolize mm -hmm. or venerate people who don't deserve that. At the same time, my job is to create entertainment. And what I try to do underneath it all is with, with Narcos, I was able to say, well, if you want to see how a if you really want that Escobar life, watch season two and watch the motherfucker get shot up on a rooftop. You know, in, other, in other words, at, at, at the very least, the depiction shows what can happen at the end of the day. And uh, in Godfather of Harlem, it's much more important to me to have Godfather of Harlem depict a gangster who starts off wanting to claim his territory after getting out of jail, owning it for all of the reasons that gangsters want to own the territory, power, money, etc., and over the course of six years, develop a consciousness about his own community that I would like to see instilled in every in people today in their communities, regardless of whether they're doctors, lawyers, or gangsters. In other words, a code of ethics as it relates to where you live locally, and the Nipsey Hustle stuff that's just happened is very, very on point mm -hmm. to where I see Bumpy Johnson's movement in this show to 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 move from a very selfish, absorbed, self-absorbed modus operandi to thinking more about the collateral damage that gets caused when you're fighting for power. Mm -hmm. One thing, look, I I don't know a ton about writing. Um, but I will tell you what my definition or I think the highest level or example of like incredible, amazing writing is, right? I, I, I go back to like Breaking Bad, one of my favorite shows ever, and I think through how right before your eyes you're watching X amount of seasons and you don't even realize happened. You don't realize when it happened. There's a flip that switch. So you're like, I don't know if I like this guy anymore. I don't know if, right? And Game of Thrones last night, you spent six seasons, whatever it is, rooting for this girl, and right before your eyes, you're like, holy shit, I don't know if I want her to, you know? And I felt that with Pablo. I felt that where you're rooting for this guy because he loved his wife, loved his family, loved his country, was kind of trying to do the right thing, doing it the wrong way, and you're, you're, you're not almost, you're literally conflicted. Uh, well, what's great about that is I knew that Escobar was a conflicting character. In other words, there were aspects of his personality that were attractive and winning and would make you root for him. And at the same time, he's taking planes out of the sky and yeah. killing innocent people. So I knew right from the beginning that in the creation of that character, the audience was going to get put in a compromised mm -hmm. position of having to decide, do I like him or not? So... I fly to Medellin after we hired Wagner Mora to play Escobar. It's five months before we're shooting, and Wagner had moved from Brazil to the University of Medellin to study his Spanish. I don't even know if he knew any Spanish before he started, <laughs> but he was there. So I went there with Jose, uh, the 
the uh, director and Eric Newman, my fellow producer, and we we and I was meeting Wagner Moore for the first time at a restaurant in Medellin called Crepes and Waffles. It's a chain, and so. I get there and Wagner's sitting outside and it's like, oh, hey, hey. And we start moving to each other and we know we're doing this together so we're gonna do this bro hug. And as I'm reaching out to shake his hand, I'm looking at his face. He doesn't have the Escobar mustache yet or anything. He's a little scraggly goatee. I look at him and I, and I, I remember this like it was yesterday. I'm reaching my hand out to him, but I'm looking at his face and his eyes and, and the shape of his face and it's so, accessible like like you love Wagner when you reach out to shake his hand he just has this it's it's an accessibility maybe maybe special actors have it maybe just certain people have it but as I was reaching my hand to him I, I was thinking of my, my, my hands were actually doing this like, like rubbing together I was like oh this is gonna be delicious you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna hate him but you're not gonna be able to hate him He's this girl likeable. before you even shoot you're thinking this I'm, I'm reaching my hand wow. across and I'm saying I'm thinking about the viewer and I'm thinking to myself oh you viewer you are fucked because this guy is so likable and I'm gonna have him do terrible things and you're gonna be what do I do so that's something you know, one of the things you learn as a writer, a couple things to say to your folks out there who, who, who want to write. Um, the, what I have learned to evaluate is I'm the writer writing characters on a page. So there's me, and they're the characters on the page. And writers often think of that. There's me and the characters I'm writing on the page. No, there's a third party also. It's the viewer, the reader, the TV viewer. So I'm writing people who aren't real on a page in order to make you feel something, the viewer. So I'm always thinking of a triangle. I'm not thinking of, oh, I have to write these characters and I have to say wonderful things. I'm thinking, I have to write these characters and make them say and do things that make a third party feel something. Happiness, sadness, terror, fear, whatever it is. So my mind is always doing a calculus as to how to make you feel something. And, that, and, that, and I think writers, it's important for writers to think about that triangle that exists. Mm. Me, the creator, the characters who are fake, and the viewer who is real. And so when you talk about Breaking Bad, what Vince Gilligan did was he managed to play with your emotions and make you wonder about Walter White. And hold on, do I? Hold on, right. really? I mean, I hated his wife, and I'm like, wait, she doesn't want her husband to sell drugs. Right. <laughs> like, why do I hate her? Right, like, right. It's, it's, it's just so conflicted, Well, and then there's man. that late season episode where a young boy, 12, he kill, 12 yeah, year old boy gets bike, killed. Yeah. At that point, I was like, oh, I, don't, yeah. I'm not, I don't like him anymore. Yeah. But the other thing I would say to your audience who are writers is this. You can scare yourself out of ever writing a word by saying, well, a writer writes all, all day, right? And, and I want to write, and I'm sitting down here to do it, but like I have, a jo I have another job, and uh, oh, okay, I got eight hours to write, but I didn't have anything to say for those eight hours. So that's the wrong way to do it. If you want to write 10 minutes a day, is what I say. And I say at the beginning, don't do more than 10 minutes a day. Because guess what? Anybody can do something for 10 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. And during that 10 minutes, you turn on your computer, you have a story to tell, movie idea, uh, what happened to you yesterday. It doesn't have to be for public consumption. You're just sitting down to write. For those 10 minutes, you set your phone, 10 minutes, type. Don't say this isn't good enough. When I started writing, I would type a sentence and go, well, you can't write. Erase, erase, type. Oh, that sucks. Until 
I, an hour would go by and I'd have nothing on the thing. Nothing was good enough. Then I said, yo, you know what? I'm not gonna tell myself nothing's good enough. I'm gonna set a time, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, and just write. No, the self-censor is not allowed to be present. Because guess what? I can come back and read it later. The censor can come and view it then after mm -hmm. I've had some time away. Mm -hmm. And so I say to people, if you tell yourself I need to write two hours a day to be a writer, you'll never do it because who the hell has two hours a day? If you tell yourself, I need 10 minutes a day to get this writing done. It might take you a year to write a script. It might take you 10 years to write a script. It might take you three days to just write a letter to your girlfriend that you never thought you were going to write, that you, but you decide to do it. I'm telling you, it's, not a, it's about consistency of effort, not length of time, and not brilliance. You learn things like the craft. I, I know a thousand tips and techniques for how to write a script that come from doing it for 10,000 hours. You won't have that right at the beginning, but you will. The craft and all the things you need to learn will come with time. It's just developing a consistent habit of doing it. And yes, I say 10 minutes, but I'm a professional writer. I have to spend more than 10 minutes a day. But if I tell myself the 10, then suddenly 10 becomes 40. 10 becomes three hours. Mm -hmm. Where did that time go? Holy shit, I just finished this whole section. So, and I really, really believe we all have a story to tell. And, and it's, it's uh, whether you do it for professional outcome or just to get it out of off mm -hmm. your chest, I think mm -hmm. is vital. So, I always say like, and I, and I call it like the Instagram era, right? Like of instant gratification. I post something on a social media, I can check back five minutes later and see if I got 100 likes, that means it was great. If I got five likes, not so much. Um, you know, I've heard through your, you know, your journey say that everything didn't sell right away and there were things that, you know, you felt really good about that didn't sell and things that maybe you didn't feel great about that did sell, right? What do you say to young writers that, you know, I hear it in my field of work as well, where it's like kids will say, well, I can't get a job or an opportunity because I don't have experience, but how can I ever get experience if I don't get a job? What do you say to the young writer that is just trying to get a foot in, get an opportunity, trying to figure out how they even get their shit looked at? Like any advice? I know when you went through, you said when you started, you started writing on things that weren't necessarily your passion, but it was your way in. Yes. Well, I think a couple of things. The, f the first is the great thing about trying to be a writer is there's no barrier to entry. There's a barrier to getting paid for it. Somebody mm -hmm. has to like your work and pay you for it, but there's no barrier to doing it. All you need is a computer and then a word processing program. And, and, and you can get it was so hard to get information about how to write scripts when I started. Now it's all available online. You can you can you can you can teach yourself lots of stuff. You don't have to have the money to go to film school. But my my, my point is, I think you have to, um, you you have to just decide it's something. Hey, not everyone's a writer. If it's like, if like if it's not in your blood to do it, then God willing, don't please don't do it. Who wants to have to <laughs> it was, write? It was all the favor. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but in terms of I, – I, what I say to young writers is <clears throat> read other people's good writing that you admire. Write without self-censorship. Um, do it consistently, even if it's just for a little bit of time while you're doing your other job. Develop a core of friends who are fellow writers whose material you can read and they read yours. I still have those people in my life that oh, I wow. – hey, like, 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 hey, dude, I need a 24-hour read. And, and I'll do the same for him. 
you know, like within 24 hours, I have to read the script and give him notes. So you develop a core of people who are your compatriots. So that, for instance, the young woman who I thought was such a great assistant at Spelling's company when I was doing 90210, I thought she was great. I thought she's one of the bright ones. She's smarter than most of the VPs at this company. Oh, I'm going to, you know, let's be friends, sort of talk professional stuff. She became my friend when she was 26. She's now the head of Amazon, the head of Amazon for wow. film and TV, Jennifer Salky. So you grow up with people in the business, as you know. Mm-hmm. But for young writers, it's get material that you can eventually, when somebody says, oh, hey, you got a script? Let me read it. Well, you better have a script there, and you better have rewritten it a bunch of times and made sure it's as polished as you can make it. And also, you know, you have to determine uh, what it is that moves you as a writer. So for, you know what it was for me? It was, oh, yeah, I'm, I like gangster stuff. And I like to research and interview real-life people who did it. And what my skill set is is taking the story of how the, Mex- the, the Colombian general killed Jose Rodriguez Gacha on the on – the, shoreline there in episode six of narcos like i heard that story stem the stern from the guy now i have to figure out okay he just told me a story that'll cost 20 million dollars to produce but i only have four and a half how do i do this and so you know for for me it was a realization that i'm good at journalistic writing for film and television got it and then before i let you out of here you know, we've spoken about this with our mutual friend Ruben, who's in the room. Um, I'm sure you're getting a million opportunities and projects coming your way. What is kind of that filter for you on whether you're deciding these days whether Chris Brancato takes on a project or doesn't? It's got to be a Spring Hill project, baby. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for me, I think I have the, the, the blessing to... Um, for the most part, choose things, as I said to you before, I wake up in the morning, most people have a place to go to or, 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 or an office with a lot of lively folks around. What I have is I have to get up, slog over to my desk and sit there alone for hours and tackle a script which has to move through all kinds of iterations and revisions before it's ready to even show another person. It's hard enough to do that if I love the stuff if it feels like a chore to go do it, then that kind of becomes my my standard of judgment. Now look, there are certain times in my career and maybe looking forward to, where I'm just gonna have to take the money job to pay the of food, course. you know? Of course. Um, but in general, it's it's having passion for it, that which just means like it would be for you. Like, oh, a documentary about Ali? Well, of course we're all interested in Ali, yeah. Right. If it was a documentary about, you know, Madame Curie in 1918, yeah, maybe not so maybe much. Not so, much. Okay. So, so there's that. But it's also for me about do – is there a theme? Like I'm telling you, Godfather of Harlem is about the education of a street gangster who starts in one place and by the end of six years has a full understanding of how gangsterism affects the life of his community right outside his front door. And and how has he changed as a result of those experiences? I don't know yet. I, we haven't written it. Mm-hmm. But it's, but I, uh, so, but it, it's about the black man in America who feels – it's about a man who's king of Harlem, but if he crosses south of 110th Street, he's just another N-word. Mm. 
Bumpy Johnson is a man of wounded pride. It's it's an incredible, and I actually think in some ways, though I'm not necessarily qualified to speak of this, in some ways it's representative of perhaps what the African-American man has in our culture today, which is to say an enormous amount of, I would call it, let's talk about Bumpy Johnson, a mastery of his own world, a cool factor, a, a street savvy, uh, an intelligence, a chess-like ability to plan ahead. He is a man who is as gifted and as capable as any other man, right? But if he goes south of 110th Street, he's ignored, right? And what that does is the core of Bumpy Johnson is a wounded pride. It comes from being as good or even better than his competitors, mm -hmm. but not being able to compete because of the color of his skin. And I'm trying not to make the show this like bitch and moan session about that. It's really a show that's trying to examine different perspectives. So for instance, Bumpy Johnson at one point owes a whole bunch of money and his wife and he know if he goes and fucks the sixth richest woman in America, she's gonna write him a check for that money. And he goes over there and then he comes back to his wife and she says, well, did you do it? And he says, I couldn't. And she's like, well, you fucked her before, why would that stop you now? <laughs> and he says, you know what? For hundreds of years, other people owned our bodies. And maybe that's why it's always been easy for us to give them away. Mm. But being there with her, this white woman of privilege, reminded me of that, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't use my body, even if it was to, for, for, you know, for, for, for financial necessity. Mm -hmm. So And I remember we were shooting that on the set that day. Half of our crew or more is African-American. I got people standing on the side of the set, like jaws on the floor, and just thinking, what television show discusses black promiscuity connected to hundreds of years of slavery mm -hmm. and sexual subjugation? What fucking television show brings this up as subject matter? And, and guess what? White boy Chris never would have thought of that perspective. I was walking down the street with Paul Eckstein, my partner, who's black, and he says, yeah, you know what the funny thing about sex and black people is? You know, there's this kind of a cultural thing of maybe, you know, there's, there's, not, there's not the kind of ownership you feel over your own body. And I was like, so that when I hear a perspective, or when I heard Charles Barkley talk about, wow, why is it that when a black man hits his peak, all his own people want to tear him down? What the fuck? There's a, he has a, Charles Barkley has a wonderful, and I put that in um, Adam Clayton Powell's mouth in the show. In other words, I'm able to access perspectives that you never hear on television. And, and, and so that's important to me as a writer to try to do that. That's why the show, you're hearing me speak with the show about some excitement and passion. I feel like you're gonna see shit on the show you doesn't get. And I have my white characters, my Italian characters, use the N-word left and right. So the epic says, well, we're a little concerned about the use of the N-word here. And I went to my writers on my staff predominantly black writers. I said, guys, should I take these out until we're about to shoot so that nobody gets offended? This is some of the most interesting shit, Paul, actually, about the show. Forget about the creative of the show. It's me saying to the black writers, should I take these out? Should I just you know, white out the N-word in all the drafts that go out to hundreds of agents and actors and everything, and then when we go to shoot, we'll pop them back in? They said, no, we'll be, we'll be pissed if you do that. Why? Because you would literally be whitewashing it. Like, we're reading these scripts, we're hearing people talk like they talked about blacks, 
And for you to not depict that is that's worse than having 12,000 N words in there. Mm. You know what blew my mind is hearing your process um, during shooting um, Godfather Harlem, where it was like you're writing. You're on, can you can you t talk our audience through that? What that process was like? The job of the television showrunner, just for people to know, is it's equivalent to being a feature film director. In other words, you're responsible for the final creative output. You are the decider, the arbiter of whether the curtain is blue or green, whether the dialogue gets cut in half or stays as it is. And so as a showrunner, four different things are going on at once while you're making a show. You're involved in writing and script development, which is the most important thing because unless you have a script to shoot, you can't go shoot. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with script development and writing. You're also preparing the episode that's gonna shoot next. You're going to find your locations, you're hiring your guest actors, you're doing all of the things to get yourself ready to go shoot. But at the same time, you're shooting a, another episode as well. So you're in the middle of shooting. So you're showing up at the set, an actor has a problem with a line or rare case an actor gets pissed off about something and won't come out of the trailer and you have to go talk them off the ledge. And then once you've finished filming, you're cutting those episodes editorially. So a showrunner is writing, pre-producing an episode while they're shooting an episode while they're post-producing an episode. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Oh, so your day is constantly one of waking up and saying, well, there are 20 things I have to do today, but I can't fit the 20 things in. So what are the six most important things to get done today? And the other 14 will slop over to tomorrow. And then those tomorrow ones will be the next six important things. And, and how far ahead are you, like, episodes, writing? You're... Well, in a first season of a show, it gets very difficult because you're figuring out what works and what doesn't. So, for instance, I was writing episode 10 while we were shooting 9. You know, oh. I was, you know I'm <laughs> desperately trying to get That's them. That's insane. Get... Now, for the second season of the show, I'm expecting we'll have a little more lead time, and I'm already starting to game plan it. And mm -hmm. Your goal would be to go into shooting with all your scripts written, mm -hmm. but that that's rare. And then as you're, let's say, writing episode 10 are you thinking through how that specific characters or those characters evolve into second season a little bit you know a little bit but not i always know that story will get generated i'll always figure out what to have bumpy do you know so for instance in this first season as we moved into episode seven eight nine I had some vague ideas about what i wanted the last episode to be but i wasn't sure how am i going to resolve this mob stuff et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's, um, it's a calculus you're kind of constantly doing in your head. So you seem like you're really, I mean, you've worked on some of the biggest shit out, but you seem really excited about Godfather Harlem. So um, before we get out of here, is it October? When's it? it premieres October 13th yep. okay. on Epics, E-P-I-X, e which I'm told might even allow for like free access when the show premieres. Okay. So that people, people love free. It out. People do love people free. People love free. Yeah. Everybody loves free. Um, and then what else are you excited that you can tell us about that you're working on or, or at least looking forward to working on? Well, all jokes aside, I'm very interested in doing some work with the uh, folks at Spring Hill, uh, some projects uh, yep. cropping up there. I'm writing a movie also for the actress Gal Gadot, the Wonder Woman, about a journalist named Lisa Howard who in the 60s got an interview with Fidel Castro, went over to Cuba, and began an interview process with him that led to 
physical and intellectual bonding between them. And Lisa <laughs> Howard ended up becoming the secret back channel between the U.S. and Cuba during the height of the Cold War. Oh, wow. So this is a kind of sexy love story slash international diplomacy story. And Gal Gadot wants to play the journalist. Mm -hmm. She's a very, uh, Gal is a very smart woman, um, pretty attractive, mm -hmm. as I recall. Never hurts. I never hurts. And, uh, and so that's, that's fun. I will say this, Godfather of Harlem, I'm very curious to see how folks react to it. I, I think it's timely. I think we're living in a country where we have a right-left political divide, where on some levels, you tell me if you feel different, on some levels we have uh, positivity. This may sound strange. In some ways, the comfort level that certain, that race relate, there's a, there's a comfort level with race relations in this country that I see in my 15-year-old daughter when she has her friends come over to the front porch and there's an Asian kid and a black kid and a white kid and they don't even seem to know the damn difference. That when I see the way my daughter is introduced to, I, I see her musical tastes. I see the, the sports figures she likes. I, I see a, a, a basis for understanding between races that's that, that feels good to me while at the same time turn on your television and it's 1964 all over again mm -hmm. with beatings and, and and this and that so I, I just feel like godfather of harlem is is coming out at a time when when it would be difficult to create a contemporary show about these issues set today and have people talk about them in the way that I want them to talk about them. Whereas if we take these problems and put them 50 years in the past and examine it through the safe prism of time mm -hmm. and get to see a New York that's no longer there, that Harlem of the 60s. So we get to see it in a, in a pretty intriguing, colorful way. But then we're grappling with issues today, but having it be set in the past makes it safer, makes it easier for us to discuss what Bumpy and his folks were going through as a means of understanding what's well, happening now. here yeah. now. Yeah. Chris, want to thank you for being on the show, man. I know you're super busy. Also, we got to get you back on once Godfather Harlem airs and, and have a conversation and see how it's being received. And But um, as you and I and Ruben have discussed off-air, um, probably not a timelier you know, opportunity for this project to come and probably hasn't been a project that's this needed given everything that's going on, so I'm excited to see how it's received. So thank you. Appreciate having you thank on. Thank you, Paul. Chris Broncano, people. It's a privilege. Thank you.